Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. Well, welcome. We are in session 18 of our walk through the Bible together, our cover-to-cover look at the Bible in a year's time. So for those of us that are joining new, this session of our journey through the Bible normally on Wednesday nights takes each book of the Bible one chapter or less at a time and does a really deep dive into it. This year our church decided together to work through the Bible in a year's time and this set of sessions is a companion to that, so that as you're reading through God's Word in a year's time, you uh, take note of certain highlights that all point to Christ. So, before we go into anything else, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time together. We thank You for being a God who has given us this this magnificent expression of Your love. And we ask that uh, we would take both its instructions and its example to heart. So open your pages and your wisdom, open your word to our hearts and through the power of the same spirit that gave us the Bible, may he reveal to us all that is intended for us to know so that we may be more and more conformed to the image and the likeness of your son. In the most holy name of Christ we pray, amen. In this session, we're actually looking at the pre-Babylonian historical books where on part three of the book of Second Kings. And this will be the second half of this middle section, which I've titled The Pathway to Judgment. We're going to cover basically the end of the house of Jehu. That was the anointed king over Israel, anointed by the prophet at the command of God, who was promised that he would have four generations in a dynasty after him. His house will be regarded as the most successful house of the northern kingdom, the most successful reign. But all that being said, all of the kings of the northern kingdom, none of them lived up to the expectation that God had for them. All of them, according to the books of the kings, the chronicles of the kings, all of them practiced the same evil that had been passed down since the northern kingdom became a kingdom in its own right. The northern ten tribes decided to become their own confederation uh, called the Kingdom of Israel. And the territory of three tribes became the confederation of Judah. Now again, Judah was the main tribe of the south, but later on it politically absorbed the region of Simeon. It allied itself with the tribe of Benjamin. And as we saw earlier on in the first book of the Kings, when the kingdom started to divide, there was a flood of migrants, uh, religious refugees who were still devoted to the worship of God, led by the tribe of Levi, the Levitical priesthood, that ran into the southern kingdom from Israel when they had set up the two altars to the golden calves in Bethel and in Dan. Right now we're going to be concentrating mostly in this session on the last kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. And a couple of things that I want to, uh, to talk to you about going forward as we finish off these historical books, I'm going to try to have the last end of the finale of the kingdom of Judah next session. 
And then the session after that, we'll take a look at the books of the Chronicles. Most of the information that you're going to come across in the book of First and Second Kings actually is mirrored in First and Second Chronicles. But whereas First and Second Kings was written and then later compiled during the kingdom period, the books of the Chronicles were written during the Babylonian exile from the Judean, from the southern kingdom's perspective. So there are quite a few differences there that I want to highlight in the next session, two sessions from now. And I'll also try to give you a little bit more of the practical as to why it's important for the Christian of today to look into the examples of the kings of the past. Why does this matter? Is this just something that's an academic exercise for those of us who are, for lack of a better term, scripture nerds? Or are there concrete lessons that we as believers in today can glean from them? We'll talk about that more in depth in a couple of sessions. Last time we left off, we left off with this character by the name of Jeroboam II, who was the great-grandson of Jehu. His reign is extremely notable for a couple of regions. First of all, he was co-regent with his father, Jehoash, for a few years before becoming the sole ruler himself. He had an extremely long and an extremely prosperous reign for a king in Israel. He is regarded as having conquered Damascus, that is the capital city of the Arameans. He extended Israel, Israel's borders back to their original boundaries set right after Solomon. His reign actually is concurrent with the events of two notable books of the Bible. The first is the book of Amos, who is preaching at Jeroboam during this time. And uh, secondly is the book of Jonah. The events of the book of Jonah happened during his reign. His reign is marked as the zenith of both Israel's military and financial success. They were known for their agricultural uh, might, the profits of olive oil, Mediterranean trade. They were extremely good at funneling wealth from the Mediterranean, from Greece, from the emerging Roman kingdom, later the Roman Republic, and eventually the Roman Empire, from the Hittites and from the Egyptians, through the Levant and into the Assyrian Empire, and on into Babylon. So they were at the crossroads of a lot of Mediterranean trade. They were even notable as horse traders. But as the chronicler gives us, he continued the state-sponsored golden calf worship of his ancestors. And again, there's something about even when God intercedes on the kings of the northern kingdom's behalf, they cannot shake away the temptation to maintain a religion that is under their control instead of under God's control. His reign is also coherent, concurrent, excuse me, alongside the ministries of the prophets Hosea, Joel, and the aforementioned Amos and Jonah. It's also characterized by a severe earthquake. Uh, and it is estimated that this earthquake, and we're going to hear about it from the southern kingdom's perspective in just a little bit, registered at either 7.8 to 8.2 on the Richter scale. And it's referenced or it's hinted at through the books of Amos and Zechariah, these various points as being a judgment on the injustice, the stepping on the poor, the building of personal wealth at the expense of others that characterized the reign of Jeroboam II. His son, named Zechariah, not the prophet, came to power shortly after his death, and he is the final, the fourth generation that was prophesied from God to Jehu. He reigned only for six months before he was assassinated. 
he again was regarded as maintaining that generational evil of the state-sponsored religion of Jeroboam I. And he was murdered by one of his military commanders, a man by the name of Shalom. So this is what we're seeing in the northern kingdom. And this is one of the prizes, prices that they are having to pay because of their continuing into the sin of worshiping of, of the king, being a dominant force in the worship of the kingdom. One, that they're misrepresenting the image of God because they've cast two giant golden calves claiming that they are the God who brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. Thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image of anything in heaven and bow down to it. And incidentally, you can only bow down to it and worship it under our control. So again, we have the reign of Jeroboam II, his house, which ended after only two kings. Basha, who gained the throne by murder, he only lasted for two kings. Zimri, who died after only a week. Tibni, who died after only uh, four years in a contested reign. The house of Omri, which was the first stable house since Jeroboam I. And that was the, the, the reign, that house included Ahab, so you can imagine how stable it actually was. He only lasted for four generations. And then he was, uh, there was a coup d'etat which ended that reign. And then you have this single house, this monarchy, which lasts a grand total of five generations. It is the largest dynasty in the northern kingdom, by all accounts except for the one that counts, the most successful dynasty in the northern kingdom. When I say most successful, I mean militarily, and I mean economically. I do not mean spiritually. Please take note of that. And then enters in King Shalom, who murdered Zechariah. He only reigns for a grand total of a month before he himself is murdered in a coup d'etat. The person who commits the act of murder, who assassinates him, uh, is named Menahem, whose name very ironically means the consular or the comforter. He was another army officer under King Zechariah, only he refused to recognize the first coup d'etat, so he invades Samaria with his uh, small force. Under his reign, as short as it is, the Assyrians come down and they harass him to the point that he overtaxes his own nobles, wringing them dry for silver and for gold. And in a giant bribe, he pays off the king of Assyria to leave Israel alone, basically making his kingdom a vassal state of the Assyrian Empire. This particular reign is known to have been extremely brutal. There was a revolt at his rise to power in Tipsheh, which he answers by completely destroying the city and executing all of the citizens within it, including pregnant women, which the Bible finds particularly detestable. He dies of natural causes. His son, Pekaniah, comes to power immediately afterwards. His name literally translates to God has opened the eyes Another very ironic name. He continues again in the same sin of Jeroboam the first, meaning the state-sponsored religion of the golden calves. And after just two years or a year and some change, he is assassinated by one of his generals by the name of Pekah, along with 50 soldiers. He, uh, Pekah, who was initially a general, had apparently formed a shadow cabinet or a shadow kingdom a separate capital that they made for themselves in Gilead. 
So he assaults Pekaniah with 50 soldiers from Gilead, killing him and assuming control. Again, we have the northern kingdom of Israel, and at this point we need to talk a little bit about the Syrian empire. In this context, most of your historical books are going to refer to this time period as the rise of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. It's the fourth time that Assyria has risen in this kind of way to this extent of power. This book in these few chapters is the tale of three cities. The city of Nineveh, the city of Damascus, which is the capital of Aram, the capital of the Arameans, and of course Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. These three cities are in a constant state of struggle for dominance. Now, population density is the big question of who has the most successful kingdom. Notice that all three of these cities are located near a body of water. In the case of Syria and Samaria and Damascus, they're located both within their own riverbeds and they're also located next to the Great Sea or the Mediterranean Sea. Nineveh, on the other hand, is farther to the east and it's on the Tigris River. And it controls for a great extent the area surrounding the Mesopotamia up until the rise of Babylon later on, but that's, that's later down the road. For right now, there's a lot of open space there, a lot of uninhabitable space. So even though when the Fourth Assyrian Empire, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, when it begins to grow and expand, it is by no means certain that it will get as, as huge as it is because it is stretched over such a great expanse of wilderness. And yet, the cities under its control, it's, their populations grow to the point that they begin to amass huge armies. This is how it's characterized. The Assyrian Empire, the, its first iteration was founded in the city of Assur, north of Babylon in about 2025 BC. In fact, its name means the land of Assur, and there's a reference for that in the book of Genesis, chapter 10, where we talk about the Tableau of the Nations, where apparently there was a figure named Assur who was later deified. In fact, there have been remains, archaeological remains, of the god named Assur, which are sometimes depicted as a, a bull or an ox, sometimes as a man with an arrow, a bow and arrow, sometimes as a disc with wings, who's regarded in that city and later on in that empire as the father of gods. And in the time of its rise, it is a major competitor in the Middle East with Egypt and with the rising Hittite empire. Its capital was eventually moved to another very ancient city named Nimrud, which in the Bible would be named after its founder, who we call Nimrod and later on to Nineveh. In fact, Nineveh's rise to prominence, again, it's declared the capital in 705 BC, but it has a significant military influence long before that. Nineveh is a very ancient city in amongst the four sort of capital cities. The Assyrian Empire, though, Asher never ceases to become its cultural and its religious capital even though the political and military capital eventually falls to Nineveh. Nineveh is regarded in your Bible, according to Jonah, as a wicked city worthy of destruction. In fact, when we come to the minor prophets, including Jonah, 
he doesn't get mad at God. He doesn't try to run away from Nineveh because he, he doesn't want to preach to them. He runs away from Nineveh because he's sure that the power of God will have a such dramatic impact on them that they will turn from their wicked ways, that they will uh, repent in front of the presence of God, and that God will spare them. He runs away from Nineveh because he wants God to destroy the city. That's the clincher. And that's why we, for the most parts, are kind of uh, victims of our Sunday school coloring books. Because when you think of the book of Jonah, you think of what? The whale, the big fish. We don't think about the implication of a prophet or a preacher or of someone in possession of the truth of God wanting to run away from a sinful people because he wants God's vengeance. The way that this empire grew to prominence was through three basic tactics. Military tribute, meaning like originally with Aram and then later on with Israel, the forces of the Assyrian Empire go to your, your city's walls. They have their catapults, their hoplites, their chariots ready, parked in front, and they knock on the door and they demand gold. And given that they have a throne room laden with gold-dipped skulls, they have a very big or else. The second means is through flat conquest. They come to your city, they destroy everything, they make you an example, they loot, they pillage, and they plunder, and then they dare you to raise up arms again. And the last and most extreme is the process of ethnic dissolution, ethnic cleansing, which is what eventually happens to Aram and then later the northern kingdom, where they obliterate the nationality of the kingdom by dethroning its king and by taking all of its citizens that they can round up and scattering them throughout the empire so that they lose their identity, they lose their religion, they lose all concept of identity and self, and they flood their old territory with people loyal to them. We'll talk more about that later, but that's the tactics of Assyria. So when Pekah comes to power, he again sets up a shadow government in Gilead in about 752 B.C. Later on, after he murders his predecessor, Pekaniah, he becomes the sole ruler. He revolts against Assyria. Right now, he's a vassal state. He's responsible for coming up with all this silver and all this gold to pay them off in tribute to make sure that they don't get aggressive and to make sure that they are profitable themselves through, uh, through the trade of the Mediterranean so that they can ship that wealth on to Nineveh. But he decides that he's going, to, uh, he's, he, he's going to keep that gold for himself. So he starts talking with the, the puppet king in Aram. And they form a coalition, and they want to get Judah involved. But the king of Judah refuses military cooperation. So Israel gets together with the, uh, the Aramean king's forces, and they plunder Judah, taking hostages to try to bring the king more in line. And this is about the time of the prophet Isaiah, where he becomes notable on, on the stage. The hostages are released after pleas and and outright calls for God's uh, wrath by the prophet Oded. And of course, Isaiah comes to the support of the kings of Judah. Israel during this time also tries to set up a puppet king over the kingdom of Judah. And this is recorded in the books of the prophet Isaiah. And this is actually in the Emmanuel prophecy, where a child, remember, every prophecy has a now and not yet echo. 
We'll get more into that when we talk about the major prophets. But Isaiah 7 is talking about immediately the now of that prophecy has to do with this point in history where the king of Israel is trying to, to dethrone the family of David and to set up a puppet king who is more willing to cooperate with them in their, in their desire to overthrow the Assyrian Empire. The king Ahaz of Judah, uh, he turns against the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is telling him, look to God for your strength. Look to God for your salvation, not foreign pagan kings. Turn to God, but instead, King Ahaz takes his eyes off of faith, turns it onto the problem, and decides that while Israel is his immediate problem, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So he aligns himself with the Assyrian Empire. And as a result, Judah becomes the vassal state of Assyria. Assyria does come, per this bribe, and attacks Damascus and annexes utterly the Arameans, destroys them, sends them into exile, scatters them throughout the rest of the empire, causing them to lose their, ethnic, their ethnic identity. Assyria annexes also, as payment in kind, several of the northern cities of Israel, and in their first step deports all of their people. So this isn't the big Assyrian deportation. But this is a foreshadowing of things to come. So Pekah is assassinated by someone who becomes a, a puppet under Assyria, a gentleman by the name of Hoshea. He's one of the generals in Pekah's army. And after the murder, with the blessing of the king of Assyria, he assumes the throne over Israel and becomes an Assyrian supporter during the reign of that king. But when that king dies... And when Shalemenzer V becomes king, you see this pattern a lot in world history. When a new king comes to power, any vassal states under that king, they rebel, they test the new king's resolve, and they try for their independence. Israel does that, but the king's resolve is solid. Israel tries to ally with, uh, with uh, Pharaoh So of Egypt and with Tyre, or Tyree, excuse me, but they bail on him. He discontinues his tribute to Assyria, and Assyria responds with massive military incursions. Hosea is taken prisoner in battle. His, uh, we know he was imprisoned. We do not know the date of his death or the means of his death, but we know at any rate he was dethroned as the last king over Israel. Samaria, after a period of a three-year siege, is utterly destroyed, and Israel experiences the exile. It is scattered abroad and the land of Samaria and the surrounding cities is repopulated with people loyal to the Assyrian king from several other Mesopotamian states. That takes place in about 720 BC. So this is the last of the kings of Israel. After the house of Jehu falls, it is just an ever-increasing spiral. It is all downhill from there. It just keeps going worse and worse and worse. Political instability, a lack of loyalty, a lack of national identity, and a lack of loyalty to the God of Israel. And Israel's judgment happens. Now, in chapter 17, the chronicler of 2 Kings gives us an epilogue. This is the story. This is the cause. This is God's judgment. The kingdom of Israel lasted from 931 to 722 B.C. 
the chronicler lays these charges against Israel in verses 7 through 17 that they lost their spiritual identity and started following the practices of the Canaanites, including their religion, Baal worship, and so on. They cast idols for their own state religion in place of the God of Israel. They denied and persecuted the words of the true prophets of God, of Yahweh, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They rejected the justice and the terms of the Torah. It will be later pronounced that they even forgot to celebrate the year of Jubilee, the year that the land goes back to its original owners, the, the day that all of the debts are forgiven, the day that all the slaves go free. The Sabbath rest of the land is also forgotten about. Having, for lack of a better term, the welfare opportunities, the, the social opportunities to care for the poor, to practice good business sense, all that goes away. They rejected the justice and the God of the covenant. They became guilty of human sacrifice. They practiced divination, rich, uh, witchcraft, sorcery, pharmakia. And this is the way that the chronicler gives the final judgment from 2 Kings 17, verses 18 through 23. He writes, Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel, and he removed them from his presence. The only tribe in, in this, he's not talking about tribe as in bloodline, he's talking about tribe as in the state. The only tribe, only the tribe of Judah remained. And even Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but lived according to the customs that Israel had practiced. So the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, punished them, and handed them over to plunderers until he had banished them from his presence. And when the Lord tore Israel from the house of David... Israel made Jeroboam son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam led Israel away from following the Lord that caused them to commit immense sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins that Jeroboam had committed and did not turn away from them. And finally, the Lord removed Israel from his presence, just as he had declared through all of his servants, the prophets. So Israel has been exiled to Assyria from their homeland to this very day. So basically, the people of the northern kingdom were captured, gathered after their cities were destroyed, something akin to chains held with fish hooks through their jaws, tied them together, and they were dragged through the desert to the different cities among the Assyrian Empire and put to work. As they had children, their children were taught to become integrated into the Assyrian peoples and to forget the house of Israel to forget their tribal identity, to forget their families. After that time, foreign settlers who worshipped other gods were imported by the Assyrian Empire into the Holy Land, the, the, the land that had been left behind. And they practiced the worship of their gods that they were accustomed to. So God sent uh, lions to ravage these new settlers, and the settlers plead with the Assyrian king for help. We don't know what this God demands of us. The God of this land is angry. What do we do? So the, the Assyrian king takes one of the priests that was banished and returns him to the northern kingdom, to Bethel, to try to plead for these new inhabitants. And he teaches the settlers the worship of God. He teaches them. Apparently it was a Levite, 
because it records that he does teach them about the worship of God. And some actually convert to the practice of God. Some of them are proselytized into the kingdom, but many cast their own idols still and go about with their preferred worship of the foreign gods that they brought in with them, including the practice of child sacrifice. Many others, probably the, the more dominant of them, continue a practice of syncretic worship, meaning that they try to worship both the God of Israel and their original foreign gods. And that's where we end our look at the northern kingdom. But the southern kingdom still continues for a good stretch. Last time we talked about king, depending on your translation, some of them spell it Uzziah, some of them spell it Azariah. He is regarded as the most prosperous king in the south since the time of Jehoshaphat. Uh, he was ministered to by the prophet Zechariah. He conquered the Philistines. He was the last king over Judah to have to put up with the Philistines and the Arabians. He received a good amount of tribute from the Amorites. Unfortunately, because he was so successful, he starts out well, but as the pattern continues, and this is one of the things that we as Christians need to pay attention to, he has an extremely good start, just as most of the kings do, but he finishes poorly. As God blesses his reign, he becomes arrogant. He becomes a self-worshipper instead of a God-worshipper. He actually tries to do the priest's duty of offering incense sacrifices in the temple on the golden altar before the Holy of Holies. Now, as I tried to teach you beforehand, there's a separation of church and state in the Bible. They have a symbiotic relationship, the king and the priesthood, but they are always intended to be kept separate. Only someone who is descended of Aaron the priest can serve as a priest. Only someone who is descendant of David can be king over Judah. They cannot mesh in this king. We saw what happened with that when King Saul tried to offer a sacrifice and the priest wasn't there and Samuel wasn't there. What happened? Effectively, Samuel got to tell him, your days are numbered. God is looking for your replacement even now. So the priests confront him. And according to Flavius Josephus, right before he's able to offer the offering of incense, that's when the great earthquake happens. And so great is the earthquake that it shakes the foundation of the temple and it parts some of the giant quarried stones so that light shines into it. And again, this is not scripture, but this kind of gives you an indication of how the, the rabbis later on thought of this king. Right as he's about to touch fire to, or as he's about to put incense on the fire, the ground shakes, the rocks shift, sunlight streams in and catches Azariah's face and he becomes leprous. Whether that actually happened or that was just a rabbinic story, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that during his reign, he does become a leper. He does suffer from what we would probably refer to today as Hansen's disease. And his son Jotham ends up having to be a co-regent with him until his death. Jotham uh, has a, a fairly uneventful reign. He has a fairly peaceful reign. He's responsible for the constructing of the upper temple gate, which is referred to in Jeremiah 36.10. He unfortunately loses a lot of his influence and gets subjugated by the Ammonites. He's a contemporary of Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, and Micah. Then Ahaz comes to power. 
He also has a co-regency with his predecessor. He is the one who had been attacked by Israel shortly after he receives the crown. Isaiah tries to plead with him to trust in God instead of foreign alliances, and he rejects them. He becomes a vassal state under the king of Assyria. Not only does he do that, but he becomes a proponent of Assyrian culture. He gets indoctrinated by the Assyrian Empire. He, he goes to the capital city. He goes to the place where they're offering sacrifices to the pagan gods. And he swears allegiance not only to the king, but the pagan gods. And he falls in love with their style of worship to the point where he has measurements taken of their grand altar. He casts down the brazen altar of the grand temple. And he has them build one of these kinds of altars in the house of God. Not only that, but to make the style of worship in Israel more like to the style of worship in Assyria, he has a lot of the temple's furnishings destroyed and replaced. And according to 2 Kings, he actually offers one of his sons. In 2 Chronicles, it's multiple sons. He offers them as a sacrifice to Moloch being burned in fire. And as a result of his idolatry, he is not buried He's buried in the same general vicinity as the kings of Israel, but not in the tomb of the kings. And that's where we'll leave for this evening. What all can we glean from that? Please write this down. First, we have this reoccurring pattern that when we try to take spiritual control over someone, in the place of God, it ends in disaster. How many times have we heard of clergy doing that? or politicians doing that, feigning religious authority for the sake of personal achievement, feigning religious excellence or, or religious piety so that they can become rich through it, or they be can become powerful through it, or they can get elected to something, or they can have people serve them instead of serving them. How many times have we seen religion used to subjugate, either from terms of influence or political might. Something else that we can learn is that God values those who end well. A lot of the kings of Judah, and even some of the kings in Jehu's line, they start out having this kind of fervor to turn back, but they keep this one pet sin, or they keep this one thing that is too tempting for them. Or they start out extremely well and zealous for God, and all of a sudden, other influences creep up, and they falter right before the conclusion of their lives. The one thing that David had against those that came after him in that regard is the spiritual discipline of repentance. Reflection, repentance, and renewal. Write that down. The spiritual discipline that gave David the qualifier of being a good king over Israel is reflection, seeing the past for what it was. I have sinned against God. Reflection, repentance, turning away from a focus on yourself and turning to focus on God and God alone in renewal, accepting God's forgiveness, and in the words of Christ, going and sinning no more. That's what made David different. Among all of the other kings that we hear about, they don't repent. When they falter, they fall. Finally, there is the tolerance of that which is ungodly. We talked about Asherah worship, which is religiously themed prostitution. 
We hear about Baal worship, which includes human sacrifice, the demeaning of human life. We hear about the other Canaanite gods whose worship is allowed to continue while going unchallenged. God is not the first among many, which is what the culture of this day could not reinforce. This is is dictated in the words of Moses. There are no gods but God. Only Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the only God that can be by definition considered a God. Are the rest demonic presences? Are they just uh, human exaggerations? Are they just made up statues with mythology carved out of the human psyche? Who knows? But they're not gods. Only God is God. But because they allowed the worship of those pagan gods onto the land of promise, and to influence the people of God in the land of promise. They were guilty of of this harboring of the evil that eventually influenced their lives. Whether you like it or not, you cannot tolerate the existence of evil around you because if you let it stay around you too long, you become used to it, you become tolerant of it, and you become a participant in it. We see that aspect of human nature played out here. So when you're in your small groups, and please, a lot of iron sharpening happens in these small groups. Please make sure that you continue. Share your reading and your journal highlights and make sure you're doing your journals with these as a gift to yourself and as receiving a gift of God through His Word. Make sure you're taking your journals. Make sure you're underlining in them. Make sure you're sharing them with your groups. But I want you to discuss these questions in those groups. What does it mean to be loyal to God? I've already touched a little bit upon that, but I'll ask this too. What does it mean to be loyal to your church? One of the extreme issues that we're coming across here are churches losing their identity either because they don't focus on their theological distinctiveness, because they don't teach theology, or because they just Uh, They put on a giant show and they hope that you get something out of it, including an emotional high before you leave. But what does it mean to be loyal to God and loyal to the family of God and His bride, the church? Does the music decide where you go to church? The entertainment factor, in other words. Do your kids' friends decide where you go to church? Or does God decide where you go to church? What does finishing well look like? As you consider the saints in your own life, the people who have gone before that have had an impact on you from a Christian perspective, from a spiritual perspective, who finished well and what did that mean for them? What do you see finishing well looking like in your own life? And lastly, what spiritual discipline, and we've already touched a little bit on that, what spiritual discipline can you bring to bear to ensure that at the end of this life, you finish well, and when you open your eyes on that other side of eternity, you will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. What discipline can you practice, can you bring to bear in your own life to ensure that you finish and finish well? And all God's people said, Amen. Any questions before we conclude this evening? Uh, The question is on how B.C. and A.D. came about. I'll have to do a little bit more research on that, but 
um, if I remember correctly, sometime around the third century AD. There were scholars, I think St. Jerome was in on it, but I'm not sure. I'll have to look back on that. But And you'll notice that I do still use the Christian calendar reckoning, B.C. and A.D. versus B.C.E. and C.E., because quite frankly to me, they make no sense from a non-religious point of view, much less the religious point of view, but that's another sermon. During the third century, I think that it was, there were scholars that tried to date back the time of the birth of Christ. And when they had kind of had that guesstimate in mind, they reckoned that as year one AD. So every year that came before year one would have been BC, right, would be going backwards. And everything after it would be forward, where we are today. So under their reckoning, under their scholarship for all intents and purposes, we are 2,023 years past the birth of Christ, Enio Domine, the the year of our Lord, 2023. That's why B.C. counts backwards and A.D. counts forwards. And you're not the first person to ask me that. I actually had a, a couple of people kind of message me on the side asking, why does B.C. count backwards? Are you getting that wrong? Or so... Uh, there it is. Anything else? All right, if not, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for this time, and we thank you. We thank you that we might learn from the example of those who have gone before us, and we ask that you would use that example to help us avoid the pitfalls that they fell into. Help us to finish the course set before us in strength, that in the, in the hour that we finish, Lord, that we as Paul will receive that crown at the end of the course. Help us to preserve the faith. Help us to, in all things, rely not on our own strength, not on our own wisdom, not our, on, on our own anything, but Lord, to, to rely solely upon your providence through all things, Lord, to proclaim your word boldly and to be transformed by that word. In the most holy name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you and God bless you.